Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcasts Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 strapped to a board with knives coming out our body here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phil Scove. And with us today is a man, I believe we've been hunting him down for three years and we finally got him. Finally got him. Uh, David Ehrlich of IndieWire, thank you so much for coming on the show to, uh, to do this film. My my pleasure. Happy to be here. It's, uh, I mean, I... I I don't want to speak for Kenny, but I, I'll speak for myself in saying that um, you're one of my favorite film critics out there. Uh, I, I, I appreciate the the no-holds-barred way that you review films. I think that uh, 
most people are too afraid. <laughs> so I, I appreciate your courage. <laughs> no, but true. I, I truly like. I think that I think that very few critics expect movies to be as good as you want them to be. And I, I think about your uh, your top ten, um, or I don't even know how many movies you put into your top video montage at the end of every year, which I imagine is a enormous undertaking. And mm. uh, maybe, uh, maybe you know, too much of an undertaking. <laughs> but yeah. But I but I look forward to them every year, and I, no, I, I think yeah. they're I think they're uh, so I, I appreciate you yeah, taking the I time mean, to come on here. I can uh, I can hate and also love movies. Uh, that's, that's what I'm saying. You and know, the worst and, part of my job and most frequent is when the movies fall on the vast spectrum in between, and sure, sure, uh, you know sure. I have to like must or some sort of way of conveying interest when I'm not really interested in them myself. And I, uh, that, that actually gets harder, I found, as I get older and uh, my, my, my attention span gets shorter. But neither Well, neither I, I imagine that, and I think I, I think I can speak for Kenny when I say, you know, we're covering every film of 99 and there are times when we sit down in front of a film that we've never seen before and perhaps for a reason. Yeah. And you sit down and you're just like, well, okay, so this is going to take two hours of my life. And, Did you guys front load this by just starting with all the ones you loved as anyone naturally would and then just like doing the dregs now? We've, I think we've been pretty smart about how we've paced we, out most of it. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Ken. You know, what, what, what kind of happened was we were pretty cognizant of this is going to last for a certain period of time and we want to, you know, have all these temples around. Fortunately, 1999, there's so many temples, right? Um, but what we started to notice was we did hammock a little like about a year ago because we were st- we haven't done Fight Club yet. We haven't done being John Malkovich, Magnolia. We haven't done wow. a lot of really big films that we love purposely saving it for the end. But there was a period of time where, where we'd run it because because we had guests on. They, they tore into the teen movies. So we did all these teen movies in the beginning and we're running through all the movies that are. Just yeah. exhausting, like mid, like these middling movies. We, we, I mean, we just did the Minus Man, David. So, like, Boy. we sat down and watched the Minus Man, and the first thing I thought, I don't have two hours for this. <laughs> I, I just, I, I cannot give myself yeah. to this thing for two hours. And uh, story of but, my life. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. But yeah. Girl on the Bridge, Girl on Girl on the Bridge. Uh, I've never seen. Phil's been talking about it for a while. Um, yeah, it's crazy because yeah. I felt like every American has seen the girl on the bridge. Of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I have to go to another dinner party where they're talking about girl on the bridge. Yeah. I, I was shocked that when you guys sent me the list of movies that were available and you, you had considered discussing that it was even on there. Um, just because it seems to have flown so far under the radar and was sort of you know, rendered to obscurity forever just by virtue of Paramount's DVD strategy, which, you know, there wasn't one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- and first thing I mean, look, I, I the first thing there's a film was no matter what happens for the rest of our lives, I will always remember that you were the one that got me to watch Girl on the Bridge. I, yeah. I, I was blown the fuck away by this That's film. Awesome. One of the best films we've done this year. Yeah, it's it's a movie that um, I don't know if you and I, uh, I obviously want to hear your thoughts on this in a, in a second, but I saw the film when it came out. It came out here stateside in the year two thousand. Uh, it played some festivals in ninety nine, which is why we're going to include it um, in in this. But um, I remember it sort of it was part of Paramount Vantage. Do I is, am I right in that regard? Yeah. So it, they just never really got behind it, it feels like. I mean, you still can't get this in high definition anywhere. It's it's a movie that's unfortunately kind of um, a bit of a relic. And I tweeted about this yesterday, but it feels like a Criterion thing 
it would be amazing if Criterion got behind something like this. But I don't, I don't it know. Would. As far as I can tell, I think it would be the first time they released a Patrice Lacan film. And this doesn't feel like the place where they would probably start. But I'm right there with you. I mean, like, sure. I, I sure. would love nothing more. Um, was it Paramount? It was Paramount Classics. It was oh, Paramount before, Classics, yes. yes. It was yes, even yes, before right. Paramount Vantage. Right. Um, and now there's none of them. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> sure. but, yeah, I mean, it was sort of. Uh, should I go into my whole spiel? Please, now? please, like, absolutely. I, We'd I love to hear this. about how it, yeah how it came into your life. Yeah, so let me let's rewind the clocks to the magical summer of two thousand. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was uh, almost sixteen at the time, and I was just thinking earlier today that like the fact that I saw this movie that I found you know some way to to get to the movie theater in Connecticut where I lived at the time before I had my license says and reminds me more about who I was <laughs> than almost any other factoid I can think of from that part of my life like uh, I was hoping that we wouldn't uh, go into I'm from that. Westchester I, I lived uh, I lived in the shameful streets of Greenwich but uh, uh, hey uh, buddy I'm from, I'm from Chappaqua so you know uh, <laughs> you, you got a you got a kindred spirit in Chappaqua. yeah I mean there there are all sorts of asterisks that I am dying to put next to that label for myself but uh, we don't have the time no I've been I've been I've been to Greenwich, uh, obviously to go shopping for you know high end <laughs> high end wares. But uh, I, I know that I know that Greenwich isn't all uh, all you know kind of polo stores and yeah. We lived on the um, rough side of town. I was the town. There is a rough side of town. I, there actually joke. is. I was yes, uh, I was talking to Christopher Abbott, uh, the actor Christopher Abbott, about uh-huh. this. Uh, I was interviewing him for a movie called The World to Come, and he he can actually pull off the rough side of Greenwich. Uh, element a lot more convincingly than I can. He's but from Greenwich too. He he was. Uh, I think he was mostly grew up in Stanford, but yeah, he's from Greenwich. And, I uh, love I love him and girls so much because oh, I love because yeah. he, he you know the beginning of that when he's in it the first season mm-hmm. he is the you know kind of softer side of Greenwich and then when he comes back for the Panic of Central Park <laughs> he is the tough side of Greenwich. Yeah, uh, he's got that he's got that accent. She's like, where'd you get that accent? What accent are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the Greenwich Five so doesn't square with his entire screen image, but yeah, uh, yeah we were. My family was sort of like the town's token Jews, and uh, they had a sure. little bubble for us to live. Um, and, <laughs> so wait, how did you? You didn't? Were you driving, or how did you even get to? No, this so I, I, that's a good question. I do not know. I mean, it must have taken some effort. Is really what yeah. sticks out to me about it is I either must have like scrounged up for a cab or convinced my mom to drive me. Um, but you know, I must have because I. Where'd you go? I, what I, theater? I, well, I went to a theater that, as far as I know, I'm not, I haven't fact-checked this, but in family lore, it was a theater that was actually created originally, not in its current incarnation, but by my grandfather, who, when he emigrated to the United States in the uh, early 40s and escaped the, the Holocaust, eventually found his way into the movie theater business. And he was the original proprietor of what is now oh, wow. the AMC 25 in Times Square. I think it was like a one screen porn theater back when he started it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now as, yeah, as, as of course uh, you and all of your listeners remember, and, um, and in the theater in downtown Greenwich on the railroad station, as far as I know, I have not fact checked this, but I'm just going to choose to believe the exact yeah. truth uh, was the original proprietor of that place as well. Long before I was born. My um, mom told me my my grandfather invented the fire escape, so you know we're. <laughs> I heard that too about your yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's amazing. Like so that, what, that one man had to invent the fire escape. I like well, you know it takes it takes like one picture of like 1940s New York to be like wait a second, <laughs> <laughs> your grandpa was eight at this time. 
So yeah, Listen, he was uh, he was really precocious, but very sad. Yeah, my my grandfather by the time I was born lived in Florida, where he did. I can I can tell you as a fact, as I went to them while he owned them owned a small chain of movie theaters. Sure, uh, but um, yeah, so I, I I went to the theater and. Uh, what, what, just to, just to pause for a quick second. Yeah. What what drew you to this movie in the first place? Had you seen well, could, any of like? I know I definitely hadn't. Okay. Um, I mean, but like that's what I'm saying is that like the <laughs> fact that I would have gone through the energy because I don't have like some sort of supervillain origin story as to when <laughs> I became interested in movies and right. you know, began poisoning the well for everybody else. Uh, and I, I love and, that and about you. By the work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I I must have given enough of a shit about them to in the summer of 2000 when I was 15 years old, gone and seen this black and white. French yeah. art film at uh, at the theater, and I, I remember reading, you know, Roger Ebert's review that was syndicated in the, the Greenwich Times, and I think he gave it three and a half stars, and and something about it must have decided, you know, and that I who was apparently had nothing but time on my Friday or Saturday nights over that summer was going to go do this. I think I I think I dragged somebody along. I think I remember who they were, um, and. Uh, yeah, and so I, I went and saw it. And I just remember being completely intoxicated by it. Um, you know, this is a movie that I don't know what sort of audience it would find nowadays. I think it's intoxicating power still remains. I mean, there's this sort of timeless quality about it. I love that it is ostensibly set in the present day, but really could also feel as if, you know, it's such an homage to films from the from the 60s and the time period, but it, mm-hmm. it feels, aside from the occasional cell phone or like modern flourish like it, it comes from that past but there's, there's something so overwhelmingly romantic about it when you're a 15 year old boy uh who is really <laughs> sort of you know getting in touch with that side of yourself um the idea of you know from the seven minute opening scene with a um young Vanessa Paradis sitting there with her shag sweater and her gap teeth and talking about all of her sexual escapades that are rolling <laughs> off of her life like water <laughs> off of the duck's back I mean it's all feels kind of like an adolescent male fantasy now and you know may have then as well but that is exactly what spoke to me about it i think at the time Um, were you were you watching a lot of foreign films at that age yeah i was i mean as close to an origin story as i had as being in ninth grade and stealing my dad's credit card and buying the uh seven samurai dvd off amazon Um, (laughs) how i decided to do that i do not know but uh, that was a forty dollar charge that definitely boomeranged back around on my ass when he uh, <laughs> got his, his film. But it was worth it. Um, I mean, if there is a, if there is an origin story, that's it. You buying yeah. a, a so that yeah. very much feels like that feels that tracks. Yeah, um, I, I used to do that in college with the bursar. You know, you had like the bursar where you you can go to uh, you can go to the 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 store, the bookstore where they sold everything. Right. And I would just buy DVDs there. Sure. So I would buy all these DVDs. That my ninety five percent of my collection were things that I bought at the bookstore. Then, so yeah, I did the same thing with Rashomon. Thought I was very cool, and then <laughs> <laughs> it, it. I just remember. The, I mean, the thing that really floored me when I saw it uh, back in ninety nine is the photography. I mean, it is it is yeah. a an absolutely stunning, beautiful movie to look at. I mean, aside from yes, it's black and white, and there's there's obviously uh, a sheen of classiness that comes with any sort of black and white film for for except clerks but i mean for the most part they're classy and this <laughs> and this film just radiates just the beauty of obviously of these locations of europe and 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 what have you um it was also the first time that i'd seen vanessa paradis in anything um and and she is just luminescent in this film i mean she just i'm not sure she's ever been this sort of 
charming and 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 inviting. I mean, I'm almost sure that she hasn't, but <laughs> I mean, which is not to impugn her yes, yes. her career after that. And I, I did, you know, as a matter of course, get into her pop. Uh, albums after I saw this movie because okay. if I if I am in for a penny I'm in for a pound. <laughs> shit that I love, but uh, yeah, it is it is the rare movie that is actually classier than Clerks. Uh, it pulls that off. <laughs> and it is, is central it to is. that, but it, it, was, like, it was part of the whole element of of discovery of happenstance of seeing this movie without much fanfare and feeling like you were one of the only people that it had sort of appeared to and having, and sometimes in those situations, whether it's, it's finding something or catching something late at night on TV. I mean, I don't know how these things happen anymore, but, uh, um, it, uh, <laughs> they, they don't kids they don't, don't like phones yeah. anymore. It's yeah. Sad. It's all, it's all TikToks. and, uh, and TikTok. Yeah, it's, all, <laughs> it's all their TikToks <laughs> and their WandaVisions. Corroding <laughs> yeah. the young minds of America. But the, uh, I felt a sort of, you know, a parasocial kinship to the, the actors in the movie so much that like when I would ever see Daniel Atiel in, in a movie, you know, Patrice Lacombe movie after this, it would be like, I felt a certain closeness to, He's yours. Yeah, exactly. Like knowing. Yeah, you feel that now with. uh, Yeah, you feel that now with. I mean, you know, I think everyone around our age. I don't know, Dave, how you feel about this. So everyone around our age kind of has that relationship with the cast of Friday Night Lights to some extent, where they all kind of feel like ours moving forward. Jesse Plemons is mine. Damn it! (laughs) it's funny because I I don't think older audiences quite understand what Jesse Plemons or Michael B. Jordan mean to us. They're just like just couple movie stars we're guys handsome sure. not so much who knows but you do when you have these people that that are in films when you're young and impressionable that other people don't seem to uh be aware of i think I, I, imp- impressionability is a word i've been dancing around around a lot today when thinking about this movie and the age in which i saw it just because it feels like a movie designed for a spongy brain who is new to a lot of the the things that it's drafting off of um but is you know hormonal enough to immediately sort of be open to everything this movie is serving and then instantly drunk on the only thing they've ever been drunk on which are like these the the black and white luminescent you know monochrome cinematography that's throwing at you um this sort of like pan-european flavor that's going to all these exotic locations that you knew existed but had never really been uh, it made that accessible and sort of uh, jubilant and, and alive for you in that way. Um, and it's all very light and fluffy. It's not particularly deep, but it's touched with this this sense of wisdom, of knowing, of this like romantic, uh, elemental, sort of been around the block quality that all feels true to a 15-year-old who's never been in that kind of love before. Um, and it's, yeah, I just remember just being like forged by it in real time in a way. As a 38-year-old who just watched it for the first time yesterday, uh, I can report <laughs> same feelings. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, it's, it's, uh, I almost look at you watching it at 15 and I feel bad. You're like a person who lost their virginity at 15 to the hottest woman of all time. And it's like, how, does, how, how true that is to my life. Yeah. <laughs> how, <laughs> how does anything compare after I watched, I watched, in my opinion, yesterday, the greatest sex scene I've ever seen in film. The scene, the first time under the sheet with the knives yeah. was the most I had been emotionally and like kind of got a gut level affected by a sex scene, which, of course, had no actual 
sex. Sex. Yeah, I mean, nobody even. Time. They never even kiss in the end. They never even kiss. They never even kiss. I love it and, so much. And there was something so I, I I couldn't believe it. I was I I don't shake, but I could feel it in my body. My my literal my temperature rising mm-hmm. as I was watching that scene. Um, when. It, it happened again. I mean, you know, the the scene when it was the two of them By the alone, train tracks. Yeah. and then yeah. I also thought, you know, the the very simplistic metaphor, but it works really well of him, um, one cheating on her and failing, and then two him not being able to get it up. I mean, the one where he throws the knife and the knife doesn't even stick in, yeah, yeah. like that's that's some good <laughs> shit for me right there. That's enough. This stuff works for me, yeah, even yeah. as a that's grown the, up. That's sort of the gambit of the movie, and that in the first scene it establishes how meaningless sex is in the world of this film. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it's it's not much of a currency to him. I mean, he yeah. uh, and, and certainly for her, it's clearly been something that she's used to value herself and as a weapon to not a weapon but like a way of, of, of trying to interface with luck and all these men that she comes across but it's not obviously galvanizing anything in her life and so you can't really in that context build up to a sex scene that's supposed to forge something meaningful for her between these characters they have to be sort of past sex in a way well if anything what? the sex has actually shown her to be unlucky like if anything it's brought her more problems than yeah. it has brought her any, anything good just, just in terms of Film history. And I think A.O. Scott brings this up in his review, but I think he's 100% correct. He didn't love the movie the way I loved it. Yeah, Sex in general in film has lost its currency. When I think about great sex scenes in the last 20 years, we're talking about generally homosexual-like sex scenes because they're new. You know about blue is the warmest color. You're talking about portrait of a lady. You're talking about broke back. You're talking about things that haven't been shown on film. The best uh, hetero, cisgender hetero sexy in the last 20 years? I can't think of it. I don't know what it is. Because <laughs> I've seen it all, whether it's here or in, you know, you know the, uh, the theater your, your grandfather used to own in Times Square. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, I think just for the record, uh, everybody knows, of course, that they're the best cisgender heterosexy as you put it in the last 20 years is of course in 40 days and 40 nights when josh hartnett <laughs> and shannon sossaman sure, uh sure. You know, finally puts yeah. the fucking flower petter yeah. petals on her and uh, yeah. it's, a it's obvious orgasm right I, is, I, I did i, I, I thought i went without saying that, that was understood yes. exactly yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I did think but i mean i think like yeah i i i think that you know to some extent the ones people remember are the really over the top lush ones like in the notebook or something like that sure. that have actually broken through to the point where we've we've gone almost beyond the rubicon where we're back to the most elemental parts of you know we did we did cinema parody so for our Patreon a couple weeks ago which basically is you know uh that's a montage of all the great like kissing yeah all pre- the great kisses yeah, yeah all the great like pre-code and right after code kisses of all time <laughs> um and it does feel, after watching Cinema Parody, so you did everything you could do by 1989. Uh, no one knew what to do with, with sex in the 90s. That's why almost every studio movie made in the 90s is super weird about sex. Um, since then, we've just been trying to... I feel to like Verhoeven was the only guy who was like really trying to do anything with it in the 90s. And it wasn't sexy. I mean, it was. It was, it it was like a certain thing. Sure, but, sure. It was, I mean... Like, 
it just feels like murder with your sex. Well, I think it's just, I I think it's interesting because, you know, Kenny and I are also, we're going on screen drafts to talk about Bruckheimer's films. So I just recently watched uh, Flashdance, which was written by Joe Esterhaz. And it feels like Joe Esterhaz had obviously that, that sort of crazy meteoric rise and amazing Mm -hmm. amount of money made off of writing these sort of titillating thrillers in the nineties. But to Kenny's point, like they're not, sexy unless you're into ice picks i guess i mean if that's your thing so just to, just to finish just to put a point on my really long point yes is a fine point is uh i there nothing they could have done to each other would have been as emotionally resonant and sexually resonant and yep. romantic as what they did in this film and frankly like that's kind of what i was i've been craving for the longest time well yeah i mean i think it's you know i obviously She's she is a bit of like the Vanessa Parody character is a bit of a male fantasy, but and in a way that's not dissimilar from the sort of mindset of a lot of the characters in Patrice Lacan's films. But there's uh, there's also an element that is kind of extra romantic to again like a 15 year old hormonal boy seeing this movie because she's saying that like you know all the sex that I've had, not that it's going to make you less sexually interested in her, but she's like, it didn't really do anything for me. Like, mm-hmm. it, it didn't, it didn't move the needle. It's not what I'm looking for. It kind of like took the pressure off to all the soft boys in the world. It's just like you know, there's something more important than that. There's you can get a a, oh, a, a so woman, right. a gamine beauty like uh, Vanessa Paradis if you strike a more sort of uh, you know. Th- what's the word like an ethereal connection of some kind um well there there their connection is i mean bordering on supernatural which is it's the last jedi i mean uh yeah i was was just gonna say the force all the force talk made me think of of them of of the last jedi but but also just the fact that they're only lucky together i mean this idea that they are a chemical equation of sorts uh is is just i don't know it's so endearing it's so charming it um, is, uh, it is, I think, and that's another one of the movie strengths, exactly what you said, that like it is a very sweet and pure hearted movie, which allows it to really go into cartoonish directions with the sort of carnivalesque violence in a way, not, you know, blood and guts violence, but just like the kind of noirish hard characters yeah. down on your luck. No one gives a shit about each other. I'm throwing knives at you. Uh, veneer of it all. It's just built on this, this bedrock of sweetness. And I think the movie is meant to be taken 100% literally, which I love about it. See, I watched it thinking, all right, girl on a bridge, she jumps into the water uh, in the first, you know, five minutes of the movie. I've seen occurrence at Owl Creek Creek Bridge. I thought I knew how this thing worked, right? (laughs) So I watched it assuming that they were dead, Mm. right? And that nothing that happened in that movie, I, I thought that would be our big reveal at the end that they were dead. And what that allowed me to do watching the film was completely let go. I completely let go of any pretense I had that this existed in the, in the plane we, we currently live on. And the fact that that wasn't the case uh, allowed me to really appreciate this film uh, in an artistic way. And I think it, I read a, a few reviews that I thought were a little dismissive of this on an artistic level. Um, you know, I go into this being someone who uh, I love Godard uh, very much. There were three, um, there were three um, influences that A.O. Scott brought up: Godard, Fellini, uh, and I can't really remember the third. But I uh, love Godard, love, um, but haven't done a big deep dive into European cinema in general. And I'm also uh, not someone who will generally seek out um, foreign films outside of the ones that have already been kind of pre-sold to me. Uh, 
nor will I do that with black and white films. So I'm not really your audience. It kind of needs to be pre-sold in these ways. And uh, I have always had a bit of a, a bias against black and white films. The, the reason being, I think you, it's a bad, it is a bad point I'm about to make, but uh, making a black and white film is a decision. In, uh, in certainly in modern times, since the advent of color, you've, you've made a decision to do a certain thing. And the decision can't just be, I think it's classier, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just, the decision can't be, I think it's more artistic. That's, none of these things are true. Um, what the, the films like you use is not, that doesn't, you know, evoke class, doesn't evoke artistry. It has nothing to do with that. In this film, I think it was really to separate the viewer from reality. Yeah, absolutely. Purposely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that was a decision that was made that you are not in our world. You are in a dream world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it really allowed me for really one of the first times where it was a choice, not a necessity. So not really a movie, you know, before 1960 to embrace the possibilities of black and white in sure. a way I really hadn't. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what's wild is that Patrice Lacan had not decided to shoot it in black and white. I don't think it had even occurred to him until a month before they really? began production, where he just like woke up from a dream and saw the movie in his head in black and white. And that's unfathomable to think about yeah. what this looks like in color. But I think you hit the nail on the head, which is just that it, it's a movie that needs to pry you away from logic mm-hmm. in order to work. And it has a number of different ways of doing that. I mean, I think for me, I remember being so struck the first time I saw it of just that weird sort of like afterlife. And you're talking about you thinking these characters are dead. I think that yeah. seed is kind of planted in the first scene where it's like, it is kind of like the Japanese movie afterlife or defending your life or something yeah. like that, where yeah. it feels like she's in a courtroom. Maybe we don't really yeah. know. It yeah. seems like there's a jury, but it also kind of feels like she's being judged, you know, at the pearly gates or something. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you have him, uh, and for me, it's what really separates it from reality is actually the shot of the fly in the hospital for some reason. It's like, it is kind of like a Jean-Pierre Junet thing that was in vogue at the time, yeah. mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. hyper-real choice. But it's also just like zooming in on that fly and the way that it does. It's like, okay, we're in a cartoon. We're in a live action cartoon now. Mm-hmm. And and from that point on, you know, it just gets, it just gets more and more unloosed from reality until uh, you're really in like a Tintin or a Lupin the <laughs> Third or like something, yeah. something like that by the end. And the more it goes in that direction, the more I, I love it. It plays into a kind of, you know, a, a Eurocentric exoticism that there are a lot of things about this movie that might read differently now. I mean, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it watching it for the first time, but it's like, I wonder if this movie were made now, if it, the sort of capricious attitude it takes to suicide would raise a lot of alarms, if the very sort of male fantasy element of the Vanessa Paradis character would, would you know, rub people the wrong way. Um, but there's also something so innocent about it that it's just like it, it's made for a more, it's made to spirit you away into kind of a more innocent time. And I don't, I don't know if there's anything pernicious about it. I don't know. I like, I watch it now and I'm like, I can see how people would reject this, but I think they'd be missing out. Well, I think it's interesting. You bring up Jean-Pierre Genet, who was someone I thought of as I was watching it yesterday as well. Um, I, I think that this film has a much, much lighter and a touch than Jean-Pierre Genet. Um, the, the magic realism and the sort of the, the balance that this film finds, I think, is... Uh, 
incredibly deft. I, I, I love Jean-Pierre Genet, and I think Amelie's a great movie, but like that's obviously going to a much different place than this movie is and in terms of just really kind of dialing everything up a lot more. This film, I think, short of you know the, the force talk that we talked about a little bit and this idea of, of luck, doesn't necessarily really play in the currency of the supernatural in the way that obviously a lot of uh, Jean-Pierre Genet's films do. But I, but I just love the tone that it finds, this, this darkly comedic... I mean, I think about the, the jilted bride strapped to a wheel at the end, which is just like, it's, it's just is wonderful and funny and, and you know how it's all going to end, obviously. But it, it's, it, this oh, movie is... I thought she was going to... I thought that was... Oh, you thought she was going to... Fair enough, fair, fair enough. Um, but I, but I, I just, I, I don't know, this, this film just, uh, it checks so many boxes and lives in such a beautiful little sort of ecosystem of its own. And, and it really is a shame that this film didn't find a bigger audience because I do think that it is, and I hate to even say this, but it does feel like an accessible foreign film. It does feel like a film that had it been sort of rolled out in a different way um, might've found a bigger audience. And, you know, we talked a little we feel like we take ownership of to some degree or that we plant our flags on. And this was one of those films that I felt like, you know, I never saw it. Uh, I saw it early on, obviously, and no one had ever heard of it. You can't even really get it right now. Like it does feel like this wonderful little thing that I hope that our listeners will search out. Yeah. I mean, there are places to find it that uh, I cannot in good conscience uh, even (laughs) guess that I know. Sure, 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 um, sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they are they are out there. I remember buying a Korean DVD in 2002, I think, just because I, I needed the safety of owning yeah. it in some way. Yeah, I feel um, that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I, yeah, it's, it, it's the kind of film, had I watched it uh, when I was younger, I would have been obsessed. Um, I just would have, I, like, I used to watch Contempt over and over and over again. You just, sometimes you just get kind of lost in these films, right? And I would have watched this over and over and over again. And so I do feel like I missed out to some extent. Well, uh, I love that you. There. Te- Kenny texted me yesterday after watching the film and said, "If I saw this film back in 2000, I think my life would have been different." <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I actually do think my life would have been different. I think my, I, I think my, you know, the, I mean, I said to Phil, I, you know, I, I, I'm very, very into kind of uh, unabashed movies that have the, yeah, the um, unabashed sincerity of a movie like this, right? Yeah. Throw, just just throws all pretense and irony away, and it takes different forms. Like Moulin Rouge is one of my favorite movies. It's so unabashedly romantic. True Romance, I think, is unabashedly romantic. The movie this reminded me of the most was Punch Drunk Love, mm. um, which was also this idea of like all this shit in the world, all this craziness and chaos, whatever, uh, can be not fixed. But you can find your port in the storm with one person. Yeah. Um, and I love the kind of the the simplicity of that. And look, I think it for me at least, it was kind of true, right? Like that does kind of mirror my life. I was a complete fucking mess before I met my wife, and now I have four <laughs> kids and you know, I'm a complete fucking mess. Yeah, for a different say, reason. I mean, I, I'm a complete fucking mess uh, <laughs> and you know, with my wife. Um, but uh, you know, but the, I first of all, punch rug love is not something I think I'd have thought of ex- explicitly in terms of this movie before but as soon as you mentioned it i mean they if you if you need for the people out there who have not seen girl on the bridge if you need uh, a point of reference if you need like an if you like this then watch this i mean you can't really do any better than that um and it's a very similar energy and there's also the, the line of dialogue you know talking about port in the storm that jumps out at me from this movie is when they say you know there's no wrong 
road, only bad company. And like that, I feel that I think especially the older you get, I mean, we're, we're married now, uh, five kids between us, you and I, Kenny. Uh, I am not married and have no kids, but you guys are doing five, great. Five kids, yeah. all three. Well, and I was going to say, I'm grateful no. that uh, only one of them, those five is mine. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the, but like so much, we were talking before we started recording about, uh, you know, caring less about about things. And yeah. I was saying, like, I find it really difficult to give less of a shit about some of the pettier things that I cared about before I have a kid, but now that I have less time, less energy, less mental bandwidth to do it, I end up feeling like I'm failing on those things more than I ever was before. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think that so much of that stems from this idea of, of the, whatever self-image we had and the aspirations that came with it and the things we want to accomplish in this life that we measure ourselves by. And here you have these two characters who are vagabonds throughout the previous yeah. ports in Europe. And he, she's constantly band-aided up together because he's throwing knives at her and they're making you know, pennies on the dollar, you know, whatever. They, they don't have enough money to pay for their hotel room unless they use their force bond to, uh, mm-hmm. to win a roulette or whatever the case might be. And they... You know, a lot of movies have, have sort of leaned on this idea before, but they have each other and nothing uh, on their own. And, and um, you know, I, I don't think monogamy is the right to the road to happiness for everybody out there. But there is a sense of all the petty things that we chase in this life and that we think are going to matter at the end of the day. Well, it, this, you know, this makes it, me all those accomplishments, accomplishments we're faded. We're not the, trying to make you feel bad. <laughs> oh no no I I I, 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 under, I understand that I, you guys are luckier than I am but I'll just say this I was trying to make it feel better <laughs> <laughs> but all of this makes me think of arguably one of my favorite lines in the film it's around the midway point and um, basically um, Adele played by Vanessa Paradis sees a young waiter who she's attracted to and essentially uh, Gabor is sort of tempting her and saying like you can go down that road if you want to go down that road and he says a line where he says uh, we always think that luck is what we don't have Um, and I I just think that that line is just I mean it's perfect and it really encapsulates you know everything the film is trying to say yeah and there's like a really nice like you know there there is an element of fatedness to yeah. the way these characters come together. They happen to go and try and commit suicide on the same bridge the same night. But there's your own luck. I mean, like there are there are the matters of happenstances, the woman who picks the the wrong hand uh, and is crushed by that. There's a great scene yeah. early on where this woman yes. hits on him and she's he's like, oh, she picks the wrong hand and you can just see her collapse in the words because <laughs> yeah. she like yeah. knows what that means. And there's the fly picking uh, the right cuba sugar right and so cube. on. But like so much of what keeps them together and, and ricocheting back to one another or away from other things back to each other is about the luck that they they make or like decide as luck. The, the the kismet and the the connection that they you know won't see as luck. I don't know. I mean it's like it is kind of like life is gonna serve you certain things and it's really up to you to decide what to make. Well of and it. it's a little bit is the a little bit of perspective and the grass is always greener. This idea that the reveal at the end of the film is that you know they meet on this bridge at the top of the movie where he sees her and she's considering uh, jumping off this bridge and he sees her as a, as a potential mark, if you will, to be his assistant for knife throwing. But it's at the end of the film that it's revealed that he was also going to that bridge to jump off. Well, he, well. he does give the game away or, and not in a way that I think anyone would, would pick up on, certainly not designed for to pick up on the first time around. Yeah. When he is in the uh, ambulance, he says that he, I mean, he says, I can't remember what the exact wording is, but he says something that suggests that he was also there to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
um, and then saw her and was like, eh, what's one more, uh, you know, trip down this old path? Which is basically, <laughs> which is basically his sales pitch. Yeah. His, sa- his sales pitch is like, if we're yeah. going to go out, let's go out in a blaze of glory, yeah. Yeah. which like also, you know, look, here, I did, you know, there's there, you know, having been through, you know, bouts like, Serious bouts, depression and anxiety, and you know, uh, messed with these thoughts a little bit. Not scaring anyone. Never got anywhere near it. But like mm-hmm. the idea of being suicidal, uh, you cannot be convinced by somebody telling you, yeah. "Don't try it. Life is worth living," and that yeah. stuff. So, yeah. if they hadn't, if she hadn't actually jumped, I think that this is a very underrated element of this movie. If she hadn't actually jumped and he jumped in after her, you know, to save her, I think that would have been significantly more problematic mm. from a mental health standpoint. Sure, sure. Um, than what we got because shh, this is, you know, as I said, I thought they died, but they did kind of die, right? They there is there is certainly a an you know an ego death going on there uh, that that happened and then they were reborn almost feeling like this is our second chance and let's live life to the fullest is not really what i'm trying to get yeah, yeah, well yeah. they're also playing with house money it's like like it to a casino that's what i'm getting experience yes. it's just like they both sort of made the decision to one extent or another to end their lives and then didn't and are just right. like well you know whatever i'll let you throw knives at me <laughs> like, yeah she it's yeah. like what have, what have i really got to lose at this point yeah. um uh, i want to uh just for our listeners i want to do just a touch of uh, context for the people that might not have seen this film i'm just going to read a very brief synopsis uh one chilly night on a paris bridge a girl leans over leans out over the sand with tears in her eyes contemplating the icy waters below suddenly a stranger with a penetrating gaze emerges out of the darkness a man who will change her life it is Gabor a once brilliant but now fading performer in need of a partner he has set his sights on this luckless but oddly alluring Adele a girl from nowhere a girl with nowhere to go who is shifting nervously on the edge of a decision the film was written by Serge I want to say Friedman Friedman I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh, and Patrice Leconte. Uh, Girl on the Bridge screened at the Telluride Film Festival on September 11th, 1999. And it was released theatrically throughout the United States in 2000. It would ultimately make a little under $2 million in the U.S. It has 88%. Today would make it a massive success by, you know, subtitled film standards. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, like, that's not actually that bad. But uh, it has 88% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 91% from audiences. Uh, I just want to read a, a little blurb from Ebert uh, three and a half star review. What's best about the movie is its playfulness. Occupations like knife throwing were not uncommon in silent comedy, but modern movies have become depressingly mired in ordinary lifestyles. In many new romantic comedies, the occupations of the characters don't even matter because they're only labels. There's a setup, scene in an office, and everything else is after hours. Here, knife throwing explains not only the man's desperation to meet the woman, but also the kind of the woman he meets and the way they eventually feel about each other. Dr. Johnson once said that not that the knowledge that you will be hanged in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. There is nothing like being partners in a knife throwing act to encourage a man and woman to focus on their relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this, Kenny and I texted a little bit about this, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, obviously, David, being a critic yourself. I mean, Ebert was uh, obviously a huge critic, right? I mean, he was perhaps one of the biggest in terms of uh, his readership. Uh, at the same time, it feels like his perspective on sex or sexy, quote unquote, sexy movies uh, wasn't always the best. I feel like it, he made it very binary when I think there's just a lot more definition to it. Um, this is a very positive review. I'm not saying it's not. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. He sees it as like a hot movie when maybe it's when I think there's... Well, I, want, I want to go, I want to just... Yeah, yeah, please. Just make, just make my position on Eber here clear. Yeah. I think, and I, I, I think... Ebert was, you know, we've talked about this a million times, my favorite critic and very important to me for, uh, for so much of my life. But whenever he talked about sex in movies, he acted as if uh, there was no love, there was only sex, and <laughs> sex only, love could only exist uh, in the context, within the context of sex. Um, and he, he pushed that forward proudly to me. So in this review, he talks about um, what's the director's name again? Patrice Leconte. He talks about Leconte's films as, or Leconte's approach to films as he is fascinated by the lengths to which people will go for sexual fulfillment. Right. And that is not what I got from this film whatsoever. Sure. David, you said something early on about how this is reassurance for soft boys uh, <laughs> that there are other ways to get a girl other than, you know, wowing them with your sexual prowess. And uh, I think that's the only way to get a girl other than wowing them with your sexual prowess. That's not a real thing. So I think what's so powerful about this film is the way sex is literally put on the back burner. This isn't a sexless movie. Yeah. She, they show her having sex with other men. She, so do. sex exists in this world. There is something more that is that is posited here that has nothing to do with sexual fulfillment. So that was my position uh, in, in in that. Yeah, I mean, I listen. I I I know what you mean when you're talking about the way that Ebert sometimes talked about sex, but I also. And I'm sure that, you know, if you look at enough of his reviews, maybe you see some commonalities between them. And this is a guy who wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And uh, I don't hold that against him. You know, but he he had a sort of brusque mid-century attitude towards sex. But I also appreciate, as a critic working in the modern space, who gets flack whenever they acknowledge that sex exists in, in the film, that, uh, you know, there was a glorious time in this country when film critics could be horny on Maine. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think mm-hmm. that I think that sex is such a, a central part of film of image, um, not necessarily in uh, always in a positive way. And we can talk about gays and all of the thing that go or goes along with, with the way that it's been co-opted over the years that cinema's existed. But I think that there is kind of a willful denial of it that we now see expressed in the movies sure. themselves. You were talking about the sex scenes of the last 20 years. And I think a part of that is that the dominant forces in cinema, not that, you know, 
Well, actually, there was a time when a lot of those sexual films, those Joe Esterhouse, uh, Paul Verhoeven movies were raking in the dough. But, you know, the, the biggest force in the box office these days is, Mar- is uh, Marvel. And the, in the Marvel universe, there is not sex. There is barely kissing. So um, <laughs> I think that's a kind of a ritual sure. effect. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I'm always sensitive to people deciding things about film critics based on uh, uh, scattering reviews because I know how quickly these things are, are written That's in a, a hurry but as much as I envy Roger Ebert <laughs> for the time relative to the time that I get to write something that he had uh, and the, the column space that he had to fill relative to uh, <laughs> sure, demands sure. of modern critics anyway um, I, yeah I agree I think that the there's something I, I, the movie has an, a very interesting relationship with sex and, and I think it's just that it's not a that I mean, it recognizes her sexual value and an appeal to men. It, it recognizes that sex has been a double-edged sword for her. It is the way of her testing her luck, but it also often finds her hoisted on her own petard, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like by by using sex as the currency to find men, uh, she often finds men who are only interested in her for sex, and um, she turns on them in a dime, which is really funny, particularly with the tackies in the boat at the end, where you know they're sitting on the boat and she's trying to force a smile, and uh, and uh, Daniel Atiel uses his force talk to be like, you know, he's a bum, and she's like, yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like they were just yeah. together. Um, and, you know, I think it's easy to, and again, if the movie came out these days, to, to extrapolate these sort of passing generalizations about uh, what that means right. for <laughs> about women and, and men. And Patrice Lacan, as a number of French you know, male directors of a certain age were wont to do, passing these, like, you know, they, they saw women in a certain light often. And I think Patrice Lacan's body of work reflects a more nuanced understanding and use of women um, than maybe you would assume if this is the only film of his that you'd seen. Um, and, but, you know, I, I think it, it is playing into these broadly coded romantic gestures where, where it's, um, but also rubbing against them. It's like, there is, they are this kind of mismatch yeah. Perry's a lot older than he is. He is, you know, this disgusting, decrepit creatures over the age of 40. Just like throw him <laughs> on a fucking, throw him in the garbage pile. Yeah. yeah, he's dead. And, yeah. Um, and disgusting. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there is that. Like, he is above board about the fact he says it very upfront. Like, I don't ever sleep with my assistant. Like, I don't ever sleep yeah. with my partners. Like, yeah, it's it, it's clear that it's not a sexual thing for him. Well, I, no, I mean, not, I don't think so. You know I, what I, I mean? I, I want to I wanna go back to so much of what you were talking about, David. There's, like, a lot in there that I was really kind of <laughs> uh, intrigued by. Um, first of all, be horny on Maine, please. It's important. <laughs> Um, it is important because that's the, that is the other thing that I did love about Ebert. I think it's important to acknowledge relative attractiveness in the, in, uh, films sometimes. Um, the problem is when you only had male critics and they were being overly horny on Maine yeah. and you, of course, you're just continuing the biases and the right. gaze that you see on screen. But, but if we have this, uh, you know, utopian critical community where you have everyone with an equal voice then everyone can be horny and respectful and uh, right. the movies can yeah. acknowledge that. Well, yeah. and then you're, ex- I, I, I have the problem with film criticism, with the ex- expectation um, that film criticism should be uh working at a more progressive, working from more progressive cultural space than the works they're actually discussing. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, 
you should certainly be allowed to be as horny or hornier than the films you are watching <laughs> and acknowledge when a film is hornier sure. or hornier uh, than, than, than others. So yeah, I, 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 uh, I think that's important. Um, in terms of this film, like, look, I always go back to uh, Harold and Maude because there is nothing about Harold and Maude that I thought was gross. Because what Harold and Maude was, was to sell me two people who genuinely loved each other and needed each other. And all the other shit washes away, right? It's when it doesn't work, like Richard Gere and Winona Ryder in Autumn in New York, that you start saying, oh, this is terrible. Why is it terrible? So in this movie, I didn't even think for, and I'm very, you know, I'm very sensitive to this shit because I live on the internet too. But I didn't think about it for half a second because this movie did such an incredible job of selling their symbiosis. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and it uses romance. I mean, yes, you think of them in romantic terms together and, and, but there's no, even at the end when they sort of ride off into the sunset or the camera rides off in the sunset and leaves them where they are, there's not necessarily the promise that they're going to embark on some sort of sexual relationship. It is more about a, uh, cosmic partnership of yeah. some kind of a these two loners one who is too jaded to allow himself to be needed by anyone you know he's only using them for his act and his act consists of putting them in grievous bodily harm potentially and she who is so desperate to be fulfilled to have that sort of other half that she is uh, not really vetting the the men who are like anyone who flashes her a smile um she's she's so unsure of her own value that she thinks that you know anyone who's going to show even a passing sexual interest this beautiful 21 year old girl and horrifying by the way to see that she's 21 now um yeah. now that i am uh, no longer 15 but um <laughs> it's it, it, it's yeah, they are just sort of these perfect foils for each other and can balance each other out in a, in a cosmic slash chemical way. And whether or not they ever decide to touch one another or if it's only going to be the knives between them is kind of irrelevant. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Um, That's how yeah. I feel. Yeah. Well, I would also say, too, you, know, you brought up something there that I, that I think is incredibly important. It's, it's a movie about self-worth, right? It's about how they perceive themselves. He perceives himself as, you know, a disgusting over 40 uh, knife thrower <laughs> whose hand shakes. And she doesn't allegedly. even, I mean, allegedly. And then at the end, or, or near the end, when she runs away with, uh, with the groom of that, of that takis, wedding. Takis, Takis. Takis, yes. who, who, um, who asks her what side of the bed she likes. And like, that's yeah. all it takes, right? Is that someone to acknowledge her existence and and what might make her happy for you know however long um the the bar is so low for these two in terms of of someone acknowledging them for being worth something i mean at the end you know i would say that that you know obviously there's there's the inverse of it seems as though he's saving her at the beginning and she's saving him at the end but it's very the blind side like i thought we were saving him <laughs> and it turns out he was saving us very much the blind side <laughs> But we, I, we but class at film school. We call it a blindside. We call it a blindside. You just blindsided me with that. <laughs> but I, but I do think that there is something to what you're saying, which is that they they realize that you know the power that they have together, the power of their partnership, and that it and 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 it is. I mean, it is sensual. It's not sexual, but there is some sort of a. There's obviously. 
two of them. I mean, I think about, I, I think that if there, there's a lot of all the knife throwing scenes, I guess, in some form or another are sort of sex scenes, but the scene by the, the train tracks with the light streaming in through the slats of the wood. Yeah. Um, Mary is, and Faithful, that song, you know, seared into my brain. <laughs> right. Brain. I mean, and it's, yeah. it's, that scene is obviously, that, that, what leads into that scene is her saying, I'll do it anywhere you want to do it. Like it just needs to be right now. Like mm-hmm. there's definitely this component of, you know, there, there's a there's a sex a sensuality to what they're well, doing. Well, it's interesting. You know, it, the movie really has it both ways in a way that a lot of classic films and you know maybe films yeah. to this day continue to, which is that even though it is this this uh, perversely chaste, uh, innocent thing that is rooted in a kind of not sexlessness, but a background sex, it wouldn't work if these were two unappealing people. You have sure, to, sure, sure. you have to want to look at them. Um, yeah. And that is kind of a, um, that is, you have to feel a sexual tension, even if it's not going to be fulfilled. And like that, that is an energy that again is more honest to the, you know, the, the voyeuristic experience of, of watching I... people in life than people may want it to be. But, <laughs> it, it might work if they were less attractive. I, I, I and I and I, I don't. I, I know I sound like a devil's advocate and a, just a contrarian and maybe a bit of a dick, but uh, it might work. Like that's you know that's kind of the Harold Maude of it for me. Like like the fact that they don't actually have sex, but I equated uh, immediately. These those are sex scenes to me. That 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 was hot. Oh yeah, this is a hot movie oh, 100%, 100%, to me for sure. I mean yeah, um, I mean she's like. Orgasmic. I yeah, mean, it's she, not. Yeah, this is not subtle. It's not subtle. <laughs> it, it is. It is a. It is a magic. It, like that in and of itself is a magic act that yeah. I don't, wouldn't put it past the movie to do it with. You know, they're not going to do it. With, not going to do it. With whatever. Harold and Maude, but for instance. Harold, well, yeah, it would be a joke, but like yeah. that's unfair, right? That's an unfair sure. way to, to. That's an unfair way to treat those characters. And I mean, that's what another thing I love about Harold and Maude. They just they they treated it straight. But yeah. it's also like this idea that I think you get from the the carnival element of it, and then like the the booker who is you know very sort of mercenary about taking this act and that act is that they are in this big and bustling world where women are jumping off bridges and uh, grooms are leaving their wives on ships, and it does kind of yeah, feel like yeah, every yeah. man for them or every Got person for sure. themselves. Yep, yep. And it's <laughs> it's so lonely and isolating. You see how quickly that takes root at the end when they're in Istanbul and he, you know, he's on his own for five minutes and he's basically living in a flop house and on the street and wearing a sign for a living and, and how quickly they fall apart without one another. And it's like, they find there's something, you know, it's obviously rooted in this sort of heightened romance and uh, in this metaphysical place, but there's something between them and they have to cultivate. I mean, it gives them ability to hear one another across space and time. It gives them a sense of belonging and purpose. And it's just, there's a, for all the romance of the movie, they are to me surrounded by this really vast sea of loneliness of like everyone Mm -hmm. sort of being on their own. And it doesn't really matter what the thing is that they use to complete one another. Um, But that they, they are able to form this partnership is kind of everything. Well, and I think um, I think you also you know you mentioned the um, that first sort of in Monaco when they're in this sort of carnival esque sort of show, if you will. You have that contortionist, um, that great scene with the contortionist on the top of the icon, piano. Yeah. We, stand, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we stand, we stand, we stand. The contortionist. <laughs> 
Um, and, and just sort of the fact that this movie also finds a way to make each one of these set pieces. I mean, throwing knives at a person just as a writer, finding ways to sort of twist and turn and make that compelling each time in order to build the stakes of it, in order to make it feel different, you know, putting her on the, the wheel of death, if you will, making it blind. I mean, doing all these sort of things that, that make it, again, dialed up that much more, but believably so, I think is also a testament to how sort of nimble this film is in terms yeah. of tone. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to be make too fine a point about it, but like, because this is really a film that that is about sort of the feelings that it conjures and its surface pleasures. But sure. there is kind of an element when you are, you're talking about like the, the raising of the stakes in the way that they do the knife routine. And it's always a little bit more deadly. And if you extrapolate that over the long enough period of time, you talk about a relationship with someone that you're like, oh, you're dating and now you're dating exclusively and then you're moving in and now you're getting yeah. married. Like the stakes are going up. You are ticking <laughs> down to death. I mean, like this is, yeah. this is how it goes. And you are making these, these increasingly significant commitments to one another. And this does feel like a way of hyper intensifying it and sure. uh, uh, the, the life cycle of a relationship in a way. And then it's an interesting contrast to Takis and his bride who, uh, you know, jump into an actual marriage that has absolutely no strength to it and, yeah, and it falls <laughs> apart by the end of the ceremony. But sometimes, sometimes simple metaphors are the best, particularly in a movie like this that's play that has the, such guts in so many ways. The simple metaphor of the of the getting nicked by a knife almost every time, of bleeding, yep. of the yep. woman taking the you know the, the majority of the risk and the majority of the you know the 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 pain, the punishment in a relationship yeah. feels right to me too. But like that that shit would feel so schlocky if it weren't for the guts that he has in so many other elements. Cause I'm thinking again, I'm, you know, the punch drunk love thing. He does one, Paul Thomas Anderson does one kind of flight of fancy thing. Uh, Adam Sandler, all of a sudden becomes the most, the, the best fighter, strongest man in the world. And he says, mm-hmm. I have a love in my life and it makes me stronger than anything you'll ever know, which is, you know, a sure. little flight of fancy. I get what you're doing here. That's this movie writ large. I have a love in my life. Now I can talk across a continent. And you just get into that. You just get into that and into that and into that. That these, I think that's also the reason that kind of stuff and the knife throwing on all these heightened elements. That's also the reason why, um, that's also the reason why sincerity works so well. Mm. Like the, it leads with silliness and irony, but the, the, the base of this, the sincerity of it is why I love it so deeply. Yeah, and it never it never blinks. It it never it never like winks to the camera and is like, you know, we are we actually we get how cheesy this could could be. Um, but we're really with you. I mean, it really just continues leaning harder and harder into it, as you were saying. Uh and there's yeah, it's like the music is carrying it along. And um what was I gonna say? I totally lost my my train of thought. I was thinking, oh, we got too busy daydreaming about the romance of European uh, casino plaques. You know, sure, it's like sure. so much cooler than a chip. You know, <laughs> yeah. These stacks that they have. Yeah, and I thing. always yeah. watch like the European poker tournaments on TV and yeah. shit and just be like, man, what I wouldn't give for one of those, I would pay more <laughs> money than one of those plaques is worth just to, to have it uh in front of me in my cards. Um but yeah, I, I think you know. Yeah, I'll just. I also, that. I also want to say you mentioned something, Kenny, that I think is interesting about the her getting nicked, you know, and uh, periodically. I, I love the fact that whenever that happens, it's because of their connection to each other. I sense that you were tensing or, or this sort of this emotional connection they have, where he almost feels her body 
at the other side of the yeah. room, you know, mm-hmm. the, these, this, 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 you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, almost connection that they have um, and, and how that's dangerous in its own way. Uh, I think yeah, it's, well, it's, really- it's dangerous to give a shit about somebody else in this world. Right. Yeah. Like, yes. especially if your job is to throw <laughs> knives at them. Um, I mean, like yes. that's definitely a part of it where it's like, he's been, you have to think, you know, you go back, these, these are characters that, are fun to imagine where they were before this. And the movie starts with her seven minute monologue about exactly that. (laughs) But it also feels like it's such a snow globe of a movie and that like it doesn't really exist outside of when it begins and ends. It's a closed film. But you have to imagine like he alludes to some sort of romantic hardship or a number of them. And like what kind of man does a job where even if he's not falling in love or sleeping with these women where he is uh, throwing knives at his body. I mean, like, you know, a a good night is when he doesn't, bleed his partner out um and uh it it, yeah there is kind of uh there there's that element there which i think makes the bond between them all the more special there's also an element of of hope that's just like you know it it doesn't always work out for her but the idea that like the next the next town the next guy that looks at you the next uh the next stop the next night on your your circus tour like could be the one that turns it all around and there is you know for as um, lightly as it takes suicide there is you know i think to bring things like a heavier direction and there's a movie called the bridge which uh, was a documentary i think also in the late 90s or early 2000s about people who had survived jumping off of the golden gate bridge and i would always remember how and there's also another movie by the way called the girl on the bridge about that was made just in the last two years about suicide in new zealand Uh, and there's also an older classic film called the girl on the bridge that's a lot more in common with uh, this movie than any of those do but i was thinking about the people on the golden gate bridge and how like to a person the ones who miraculously survived that drop all said that as soon as their feet left the bridge they regretted trying to kill themselves and there there is that like thing finding finding the the next sort of like nibble finding the next the next reason to get up in the morning and then the hope that the the next person you meet could be the one that turns it all around and it's always sort of in the last place you look right like ideally mm-hmm. uh, like every marriage is going to end poorly because someone's going to die <laughs> and uh, oh. that's the best case scenario i mean it's the more of it all but uh they're the the best thing you can hope for is that you will you will meet someone who's gonna well that uh, i mean yeah. that that brings me sort of back to the to the end a little bit you know we, we talked a little bit about the fact that they never they never consummate the relationship romantically in that in this they never kiss they never have sex sure and that hug that they have at the end where he he, he basically jump cuts it and makes you oh, live that hug best. like three, four times just to really hit home for you that like these two are meant to be together. They just don't necessarily need to be together in a, in a cliche, you know, you know, kissing and yeah. all that sort of nonsense. It's the victory lap that he's 100%, taking at the end. 100%. And again, to have the balls to do that in this type of movie, to yeah. know that how to know you stuck the landing like that, having done this crazy shit. Yep. It, yep. It's just it's it's such a comp. It's such a confident piece of work. I'm I, that's part of why I was so blown away. And I think there's just it's fun as a viewer to imagine that there are people like this out there in the world. That we live in a world, you know, no matter how heightened the movie's world might be, where these kind of stories could even be dreamed of, let alone take place. Uh, and it just it it fills your life with that extra dollop of romance that. Especially, I mean, if you are with someone, if you're not with someone, I mean, it gives you the hope mm-hmm. that um, you can find an element of that fantasy for yourself. Um, 
It, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I I have not watched this film probably since back in ninety nine two thousand. I mean, as I mentioned, there's really no way to do it. Uh, but I haven't really watched it. Um, and when I pressed play the other day, within five minutes, I was taken back to literally those feelings of seeing it back in ninety nine and just being like, "Oh right, this is a masterpiece." Like th- this movie is beautiful. This movie is just so wildly confident, as Kenny said, so wildly romantic. Uh, it just knows what it's doing from the jump. You've seen a lot of movies, David. Obviously, it's your job, and I think you can attest that a lot of movies don't have that confidence. That when they start, they you you immediately, within the first 10 minutes, you can be like, well, okay, so, all right, this is going to be a bit of a slog. This film is so um, graceful. It moves at a quick clip. It's 90 minutes. It knows what it's doing. It it, it just, it, it it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, I just, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I enjoy the film. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, Patrice Lacan is, is a really interesting director to dive into. I mean, he has a lot of, he has as many misses as he does hits, and um, he has a lot of French directors of a certain age do a penchant for these kind of sitcom grade comedies that he's mm-hmm. really sunk into in the last couple of years as he's slowed down. But mm-hmm. by the time he made this, I mean, he had already had a huge hit with ridicule. He had made The Hairdresser's Husband and Monsieur Hure. He'd been working for decades. Um, and it it does it does kind of feel like one of those lightning bolt moments where it's like someone who knew their way around a set in the business and it had the pull to make this happen. Just like it all kind of came together um, and not necessarily in a way that resonated for audiences worldwide and uh, made it in this kind of uh, a movie that, you know, is available in the Western world. But uh, it it does feel like like everything that he was trying to do was kind of synthesized in this one bottle of lightning and uh and then you know kind of diminishing returns after i mean the widow of saint pierre which he made like right away after that and the man on the train and also intimate stranger these are all like some of his best movies he was kind of in the pocket around this time but it does kind of feel like a high that he and we the people who continue to follow his career anyway were chasing to no avail sure um so kenny do you want to do you want to rate this movie are you uh, are you interested in, in doing that? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I do. I am. Okay. Yes. So, um, just to basically, David, what we do is we rate the film from zero to ninety nine. Zero being the lowest, ninety nine being the highest. Fifty percent. I think we all know that we all love this film, but basically, you'll rate it for what you thought in ninety nine. You'll rate it before this podcast, and then after, if it's changed, if this conversation has changed your opinion on it one way or the other. But um, I, I'll go first. In 99, said I, I saw this film, loved it back then. I probably would have given it about a 90 back then. I mean, I, I really loved it. Um, but I have to say that uh, looking at it now through the lens of who I am now and what the world is now, um, I loved it even more. And, and I don't know what that says. I don't know if it's that I haven't left my apartment in almost a year. Um, so I don't know if that's affecting. I'm sure it is to some degree or another. Um, but I was just so swept away by, by the, the romanticism, the characters, the the photography. Um, I, I desperately wanted to see this on the biggest screen I possibly could, and uh, it, it's a it's a real it's a real wonderful movie. So I'm I'm at a 95 or a 96 now. I think that's basically where I am on it. But um, where are you, Kenny? Uh, I want. Look, this is like my favorite kind of movie, uh, <laughs> an unabashedly romantic movie that is able to uh, do that in a way that is not cloying or embarrassing, um, which is kind of, you know, the, the thing that, that happens so often is like, like at some point you get kind of embarrassed watching a movie that's so <laughs> unabashedly romantic. But I was um, so absolutely into this 
so taken with every element of it. Um, one of the best films of 99, without question for me. I gave it a 97 and I'm going to continue to give it a 97, um, which is one of the highest movies, one of the highest ratings I've given all year. It's true. I'm so glad that I could instigate uh, (laughs) your discovery of this film. That's so cool. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, Phil, you kind of, you hit on something that is hard for me to deny, which is that I had the good fortune of seeing this movie on the big screen and like really envelop myself in it back in the day. And again, talking about sort of my, my sponge brain uh, uh, <laughs> self back then, I think I was just so receptive to it that it's impossible to match that high. Um, and so I think my 15 year old self probably would have told you that this was like, you know, and I was already gearing up to, uh, for my, my shitty life as a critic to like, really become the, uh, and so I think that that brain of mine was already, you know, shooting down any scores for anything that was too high. I had to remember to keep keep things in check. Yeah, gotta, so I think I probably cool. back then would have been like, this is a solid out of 99. I put it like a, an 89. 90s okay. for losers, you know, an 89. Say, that's, that's pretty, it's like, that's pretty that's good. So, for, that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good for a cool like, kid, like yeah. Pitch, like the Pitchfork uh, 7.9. It's like that's sure. what they give all the yeah, great, yeah, the great yeah, albums, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, that's It was like a solid 89 for me. And I think now by no fault of the movies, but um, simply because it just feels like a less aromatic and complete experience watching it on, as I did uh, today on my uh, uh, computer display, sure. uh, I, I have to kick it down to like, let's say an 84. Okay. But uh, that that is still that is still pretty good in my books. Well, um, so David, I, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on the film that we're covering next week. We're, we have uh, Darren Franich coming on from Entertainment Weekly to talk about Three Kings with us. And I'm curious as to what your David O. Russell thoughts are <laughs> or on Three Kings. First it's an all, interesting oh boy. Yeah I, already, yeah. I already regret my 84 for the record. I said it out loud it, and it just like I could feel it's been seconds. It's been, yeah, it's I know, been, I know. I'm wait, is it is it too low or too high? It was too, too high? Low. It was too low. Too low. Good. Yeah, let's, Good. Let's, Get it right. up. Let's go to like an 87. Great. Right. All right. I like it. it. I like it. This is why I can't do podcasts and why I do writing, you know, on text because <laughs> I, I I'll sit here and finesse over a review for as much time as I have, which is usually not much, but like I'll be able to like be like, no, that sentence is not come out right and on podcasts i think i just the simplest thing takes four times as long because i'm always like well no um, <laughs> this has been fantastic you have said nothing <laughs> nothing that i haven't uh, absolutely loved. uh the three kings i mean david o russell seems like a truly uh, a shit bag of a human <laughs> <laughs> that, that, is, that is not something that you know obviously in recent years the conversation about the art of the artist it gets complicated i uh, i have no problem loving good movies from bad people, um, you know, less so excusing their behavior and saying, you know, because they gave us these movies. And David or Russell wouldn't be in that category, even if I could necessarily, <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, uh, I Heart Huckabees, which is probably my favorite movie of his. Yeah, I love not, that movie. Whatever torment he visited upon people to make it. I don't know if it's uh, if it's, it's not worth it. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially given the message of that movie and how you would think he, he, if he had internalized it at all, may have found ways to... Uh, be kind or whatever. I think really what I think it says, you know, nothing good about me that I really didn't sour on David O. Russell until I soured on his movies. And I think starting with the fighter, his whole we're going to light 360 degrees and just like go for pure energy and shoot um, and, you know, let your Mark Wahlbergs and uh, not that Mark Wahlberg wasn't in 
I heard Huckabee and Three Kings, but uh, just like just that sort of energy that was immediately baked in the cake with the fighter and really came to life in the Silver Linings playbook and then died in front of you uh, on with joy and American joy. Hustle, which is like American Hustle is truly a wretched. Film. I, I mean, like I really, I agree. Uh, I, that that one really drove me to my limits. I remember like clawing in my arms to get out of the theater <laughs> when I saw that. But, but why didn't more people say that at the time? Because I, I thought it was the worst thing. fucking movie of all time, too. The New York Film Critics Circle anointed it as their best film of the year, and so I then made it my mission to join the New York Film Critics Circle and, uh, and never uh, let know, that happen cure again. the poison and destroy inside. it from within. <laughs> yeah. And I've been doing my best to do, do that ever since. Um, I will I will point out, as I often have, that American Hustle has not won best film once since I became a member of the. <laughs> Yeah, you've, uh, you've succeeded in yeah, your goal. I take, I yeah. take responsibility for that. David, what um, won this year? I'm just curious. Uh, fuck, that's a good question because this wasn't really a real year in our <laughs> world. Um, I believe it was I First Cow. I know it was First Cow, oh, well, yes, which was, was a good movie. Was. I love uh, First Cow. Yeah, yeah can't, can't argue with First Cow. Um, so, but, but Three Kings, Kings do you, do you have Kings, thoughts I, on that? I saw it in the year 1999, which uh, makes sense for this context. Sure, sure. I... Uh, I yeah, I, I don't think I was as taken with it. I think in the shadow of you know, Fight Club, which is such a formative movie, Magnolia, which yeah. even more so, and being John Malkovich, and even a movie that I am now embarrassed to have responded to as much as I did when I was 15. I, I um, you know, The Three Kings didn't really pierce through the way that it did for some other people. I mostly just remember George Clooney doing his thing and Ice Cube and Spike Jones. Um, and... Uh, and Mark and, Wahlberg. Yeah, yeah, but I left him yeah. out of that for, for reasons. And, <laughs> and sort of the energy between them. But I think a lot of the political baggage that film carried with it um, was lost on me at the time. And it's not something that I've seen like bits and pieces of it on cable in the years since. But it's not something I've sat down and rewatched as a whole. And because of my growing distaste for David O. Russell, it's not something I wanted to like make time to do. Um, Fair enough. But, you know, I'd be, it's an episode I'd be, as a listener, I'd be interested in, in hearing just because. Uh, it sounds more pleasant than just submitting myself. To the, to <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll admit I have not. I don't think I've sat down to watch Three Kings credits to credits in a long time. I, um, I haven't since '99. I was. I'm super excited to do it because yeah. um, I think it's a film that has grown in esteem. I think a lot of people still believe that it's perhaps David o. Russell's best film. Um, and obviously has a lot of drama around it, him and Clooney and all that sort of, you know, what have you. So there's there's stuff that kind of in the periphery that doesn't really have to do with the film itself. So I'm excited to kind of like look at the film and try to be critical of the film. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to sort of, honestly, just to watch it again. I, I, Spike Jones is an actor. I love him. I wish he acted more, quite frankly. Um, he's great he's in great, Wolf of Wall Street. Great in Wolf of Wall Street. Great Moneyball. Great, great Moneyball, money yeah. Ball. So I, you know, I'm excited to, I'm excited to, to watch it. John John Ridley, who's obviously his career is has gone on and done many things since it. You know, he he doesn't feel as though, you know, his script was perhaps respected as much as it should have been back in uh, at the time. I, I talked to uh, the writers of Joy, and they can they can form a support group. I mean, like, Annie Mumolo and him can yeah, sit down and talk. Yeah. About writing that. for David O. Russell is not a fate that I would wish upon my worst uh, enemy. But. I, you know, it's David O. David O. Russell's career is obvious. Career has obviously kind of. Gone like this in terms yeah. of quality and also in terms of pub, the public opinion of him. Sure. But for whatever reason, Three Kings never seemed to, uh, the glow never seemed to come off Three Kings. 
Correct. You know, even someone who is an uh, avowed hater of David O. Russell Mm -hmm. generally has to sit back and say, but, you know, Three Kings is pretty good. Um, so I'll be interested to see, uh, see if it, if, if it is that kind of thing that I, I actually like David O. Russell quite a bit. Uh, I feel the same way you do, you do about American Hustle. I think it's terrible. And, uh, I think Joy's pretty bad. playbook's pretty terrible. Yeah. I think Joy's okay. But I also have very low expectations for Joy. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, and I, I love I Heart Huckabees. I think it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm excited. Think, yeah. I do think Three Kings kind of eluded all that. I don't even think people think of it as a David E. Russell <sighs> movie as much as just a good heist war movie with some fun actors. So I'll be interested to uh, to watch it again. There's, there's something. There's some kind of, of rhyme between I Heard Huckabees and The Girl on the Bridge, and talking about like the hmm. everyone being connected as molecules and bundle up here and there, and the the connections that are sort of forged between them and the, that film's overall. I mean, obviously. Uh, Iron Huckabees comes at it from like a hard line philosophical point of sure. view um, that the girl on the bridge sort of internalizes into romance. But I, I can see I can see those movies being an interesting double feature. David, <laughs> David O. Russell, uh-huh. and not to extrapolate and speculate, but it's pretty obvious, I think, has some issues with his mother that <laughs> I can really I can really relate to. And in okay. some of his films, particularly I Heart Hard Huckabees. The Talia Shire Jason Schwartzman relationship uh, gives me hives, so I, I think it's an unbelievably uh, well observed <laughs> dynamic. Well, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm so thankful that you took the time, David, to come on and talk with us about oh, this film pleasure. and and, and talk about yes. David O. Russell, so your favorite filmmaker, you. obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> true, I was and, named after. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we thank you so much for coming on, and 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 we hope that maybe you'll come back on for something else in the future. That'd be really, uh, be really great. Hey, what what other movies remain in 1999? You guys haven't oh, got to yet. Those, we got uh, we got a lot. So we'll, really, we'll, we'll, you want to yeah. come on? You want to come on for a good one or a bad one? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I, I have to see too many uh, bad movies as part of my day job. Well, so. we also we also have a 1989 Patreon as well, so we're covering the films of '89. So I'm going to send you a list of all the good ones, <laughs> and uh, and hopefully we can uh, you can uh, take the time to come back on because we'd really appreciate. Oh, it. Was my pleasure to be here thanks for having me thank you so much david one last thing please rate review and subscribe uh speaking of subscribing check out our patreon on all the best films of 1989 batman when harry met sally fabulous baker boys indiana jones and the last crusade ghostbusters 2 field of dreams major league and many many more we are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like joanna robinson liz hannah Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.